Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andreas Show. It is Friday, December the 6th, and I hope you are all ready for a fabulous weekend ahead. On today's show, I'm going to be speaking with Kamloops Thompson Caribou MP Kathy McLeod and getting her reaction to yesterday's throne speech. Governor General Julie Payette read it in the Senate yesterday. It was the Trudeau Liberals' first throne speech as a minority, and it opened with a call for unity. Payette says Canadian voters gave parliamentarians a mandate in the October election to work together for the betterment of the country. In this election, parliamentarians received a mandate from the people of Canada, which ministers will carry out. It is a mandate to fight climate change, strengthen the middle class, walk the road of reconciliation, keep Canadians safe and healthy, and position Canada for success in an uncertain world. The throne speech includes pledges to cut taxes for all but the wealthy and to cut costs for Canadians, in particular to lower their cell phone and wireless bills by 25%. As its first act, the government will cut taxes for all but the wealthiest Canadians, give her more money to middle class family and those who need it most. Payette also says the Liberals are getting an ambitious target for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. The government will set a target to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. This goal is ambitious, but necessary for both environmental protection and economic growth. Payette says the government recognizes that drug costs are too high for many people and uh, would take steps to address those high costs, something which the NDP had really campaigned on. Pharmacare is the key missing piece of universal health care in this country. The government will take steps to introduce and implement national pharmacare so that Canadians have the drug coverage they need. Despite the comments that look to appease some in the opposition, both the NDP and Conservative parties appear ready to vote against the throne speech. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says the Liberal throne speech fell short of what is needed, and he wants to hold talks with the Liberals to push for more. Yeah, at this point in time, uh, we are not satisfied with what we're hearing. But our goal, as always, is not to tear down government. I don't want to seek ways to put us back into election, but I want to seek ways to make this government work for people. And right now, this is not what people need. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer will be introducing an amendment to the throne speech today, and he says, uh, you know, there was nothing in it to promote national unity. I'm worried that Mr. Trudeau's entire approach is sending a very negative signal to uh, many parts of this country, uh, that he doesn't that he doesn't understand the feelings that exist in, in several provinces. Uh, luckily, uh, the Conservative Party stands ready to show Canadians how we will ensure that Canada works, how we will put forward concrete proposals that bring our country closer together. The Liberals' blueprint for governing appears to have won over at least one opposition party, though, with enough seats in the House of Commons to keep the minority government alive. Bloc Quebecois leader Yves-Francois Blanchet says he will be supporting the throne speech because it contains elements that are good for his province. I'm going to support the speech because I see in that speech many opportunities for us to not to take what is intended to be given, because it's not that clear, but to get things, to make some gains for Quebec. So it appears for now, at least, that we are avoiding having to go back to the polls, but it does appear that it won't be the Conservatives who will be giving their stamp of approval, and I will be speaking with Kamloops MP Kathy McLeod more about that at around the 50-minute mark of today's show.
Also on today's program, the last round of medical service plan premium bills has been sent out by the B.C. government with the cost set to be fully eliminated come New Year's Day. Premier John Horgan had promised to eliminate MSP bills during the last election campaign. The province is covering the cost through an employer's health tax, which has been charged to businesses since January 1st of this year. I'll be speaking with Muriel Protzer, a policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, about the impact on business business to kick off the back half of the show. I'm sure there are a lot of things to discuss when it comes to, uh, you know, how this has been handled over the course of this past year. I know there are some out there who feel um, a little bit unfair when it comes to the MSP and the fact that the uh, EHT was also being charged. Uh, many business out there felt that they were being sort of double-dipped, if you will, when it comes to having to pay for both the medical services plan uh, premiums as well as the employer health tax. So we'll be speaking with the uh, uh, policy analyst there from the CFIB in just a little bit. Uh, like I said, I'm sure she's going to have some interesting things to say on that topic. And coming up next, I will be continuing on with a conversation that I was having on Wednesday. Jacob Stubbs, he was a PhD student at UBC, and he wrote a study which shows that one in every two homeless people has suffered some form of a traumatic brain injury. So I spoke with Jacob uh, on the phone on Wednesday. He is a psychiatry student there at UBC. Well, we, we found more than just the 50% number, too, just for a little bit of extra context. Sure. We also found that, perhaps more strikingly to me, that about one in four had a history of traumatic brain injury or TBI that was considered to be moderate or severe, um, and also that TBI is broadly associated with poor health and functioning. So as for the implications, um, to me, the first step here in addressing any problem, essentially, is recognizing there is one, which is what we did here. Um, but I think there's implications for two groups. One is healthcare workers, um, where we hope they will be able to have an increased awareness for the burden of TBI in this population. Um, identifying TBI or problems that stem from brain injury may help facilitate more targeted care and hopefully better outcomes. But second, there's a real need for better research on this topic um, to better understand, I guess, how the health of these individuals is affected by TBI, but also what can be done in response. So I'll be speaking with a mental health professional about that study and what uh, this research can do for those who are working in the mental health field and specifically those who are working with a marginalized population. If you want to hear the full interview with Jacob Stubbs, you can do so on the podcast. You can find that on RadioNL.com slash podcast or you can check it out wherever you get your podcast, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcast. Uh, the Jeff Andrea Show is available on those platforms, so check that out. Um, but, uh, of course, uh, you don't have time to do that now because I'm going to be chatting with that mental health professional, Dr. Vijay C. The Pathy after the break. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Jeff Andreas on Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andrea Show and of course happy Friday. On Wednesday's show I spoke about a new study from the University of British Columbia talking about how 50% of the homeless population has likely suffered some form of traumatic brain injury at some point and the most common way that those injuries were being received in that demographic was through the area of assault. I guess what can be done with that data? How will it help those who work with these marginalized individuals? Well here to speak on this now is Dr. Vijay Sithapathy from the Provincial Health Services Authority. Uh, he also wears a number of other hats, including being the uh, Chief Medical Officer for BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, and a psychiatrist working in the area of people with mental health and substance use issues. Uh, Dr. Vijay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. 
Yeah, thank you so much, Jeff. So, thanks for having me here. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you taking the time. So this this recent study, which shows, you know, one in every two homeless people have suffered some form of a traumatic brain injury. I guess first and foremost for you as a mental health professional, I mean, is that data even surprising? No, absolutely not. Um, over the years, we've had a series of studies you know, which have published very similar results. I mean, we, we're talking about um, the traumatic brain injury in homeless population ranging anywhere from about 10% to almost 50%. Um, so, again, this is definitely not surprising, and uh, we've seen this repeatedly over the years. Uh, the important thing is, you know, where I work, in, in my area of work, particularly when I work with concurrent disorders, when the mental health and substance use problem, which occurs simultaneously, uh, you are, we have noted that uh, that almost 80% of them, you know, when they have concurrent disorders, they've also reported some form of brain injury. Um, so it's important to note, like, you know, the, the reasons why they, they have these problems and, and, and trying to understand the, the core issues or, or the deeper issues into, into this area. I mean, do you have any idea or can you explain to me from, from your perspective just how uh, a traumatic brain injury would, would impact somebody? Like what, what sort of, I guess, changes would uh, result from having uh, sustained an injury like that? Yes, um, traumatic brain injury, again, it depends on the severity of the impact or the severity of the injury. Mm -hmm. So that leads to what consequences the person may suffer from. And again, they categorize the brain injury as mild, moderate, and severe. And it's also important to note which area of the brain is affected. Because sometimes when the frontal frontal part, we call it uh, the front area of the brain, if it gets affected, then the way the person uh, reacts to things, you know, they can become quite impulsive and they can become disinhibited. And that can lead to quite risk-taking behavior. So, so I think one is the severity, another is the area of the brain where the impact happens. And this impact can lead to multiple issues uh, within several domains. You know, we're talking about uh, in physical health or emotional well-being or social activities. The person, the way he, he or she feels, things interact, everything can be affected. So knowing this and, and being aware that, uh, you know, it is a, a very strong likelihood that someone you might be dealing with has suffered a traumatic brain injury, does that at all change the way you would approach dealing with certain individuals? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think uh, there, there has been enormous amount of research uh, which has shown the prevalence or the high incidence of, uh, of traumatic brain injury in, in these individuals. Uh, the important thing is, you know, how do we apply in, in the real practice? Um, we have developed some screening tools, you know, which uh, we utilize. And the important the message what I want to share is uh, people with traumatic brain injury, especially in, in um, severely mentally ill, uh, or substance use problems, or having this marginalized housing state such as homelessness, they have underlying issues. And important, the important part is to, to how we screen these underlying issues, how do we screen the, the presence of traumatic brain injury, and how they both correlate and how they are associated in, in the treatment, uh, what we provide. I mean, when we provide the treatment, if we don't understand the underlying issues, then, then this can lead to a very poor outcome or, or an inappropriate treatment pathway which may not be very effective for the individual or for the provider who is providing the treatment too. So the most uh, essential message is that having a screening tool and trying to also screen for other underlying issues like mental health, substance use problems, and by treating the person as a whole and very comprehensively and individualized to treatment plan is the focus area we should, we should be thinking about.
Uh, I'm here with uh, Chief Medical Officer for BC Mental Health and Substance Use Services, Dr. Vijay Sitapathy. Um, so when we're talking a little bit about, um, you know, how, how you go about working with these individuals and, you know, trying to find out what some of those underlying issues might be uh, and how, how critical those are in order to being able to properly treat and, and uh, you know, talk to these individuals and, and, and try to better them, um, I guess how, how difficult is it from their perspective when they're dealing with, you know, not only a brain injury um, and how that potentially has affected their mental state, but then also these underlying issues, and then potentially drug use. I mean, it just seems like this population is dealing with a compound of problems, um, and and I guess just does knowing some of these um, potential factors uh, really help in terms of being able to put together an individualized uh, plan in order for them to get the proper treatment? Because I would assume from your perspective that, you know, each individual person has a very specific uh, potential way that they could be treated. There's no, um, you know, generic way to treat people who are dealing with these kinds of issues? Oh, you, you absolutely spot on, Jeff. I mean, uh, the, the focus should be uh, increasing an awareness, first of all, among the providers or the clinicians who are going to be dealing with this, uh, people suffering from traumatic brain injury and the impact it has on them on underlying issues such as substance use problems, mental health, and, and what we call as a concurrent or co-occurring disorders. So. One of the uh, message which I, I want to want to strongly pass on would be to uh, understand these persons or these individuals when they suffer from traumatic brain injury with the underlying issues. One of the commonest problem we face is the individual itself is not aware of the problems or, or the significance of the problem what they what they are suffering from. We call in psychotic term the lack of insight or unawareness. So, so that's really essential for a provider or for an expert to understand this, be aware of it, and screen them comprehensively so that like we, we not only just ask about TBI or traumatic brain injury, but understand the, the core other underlying issues, which could be substance use, could be homelessness, could be social impact, what they have, and how do we plan the, the treatment trajectory for mm -hmm. these individuals. And, Another important issue, what, what, what can be get missed is most places have an, um, a treatment plan or a pathway which get sometimes uh, imposed or say this is, this is how we need to treat, this is the treatment you need to follow. And at the end of the day, the outcomes what we are looking for is more important than the type of treatment what we're giving. Mm -hmm. So it, it, tailoring the needs for, for the client and, and looking at what the client's underlying issues are which could have a high risk of uh, getting homeless or, or, or repeated traumatic brain injuries in the near future. So our focus is prevention. So one is prevention of any serious untoward incidents happening from now, while comprehensively screening and individualizing a treatment plan, not just looking at the person's one area of focus, so, but we should look at the person as a whole and treat the person for physical, mental health, emotional well-being, and also the other social problems what the clients may be facing from. Just curious from, from I guess, your experience, when you're dealing with, with certain people, and you said a lot of people don't even necessarily know that they've suffered a brain injury, or if they do, they don't know the severity of it. Um, do you think that ha if a person is aware of their circumstances and is aware of some of the issues that they're dealing with and some of those underlying issues potentially as, as well, does that help when it comes to uh, achieving positive outcomes? Does a person's knowledge of their own situation uh, make it easier for them to progress and, and, and become you know, better or at least better dealing with their with their issues? 
Uh, you completely right, Jeff. I think one of the most important um, uh, challenges we face when clients suffering from substance use problem or a mental health issue, or in this case, a traumatic brain injury, is the lack of awareness of the seriousness of the problem and the impact it has on the person itself. Sometimes, even if they are aware, their inability to deal with it, the inability to, uh, to approach it in a way that it could have a positive outcome for themselves. And again, this is not because the person don't want to do it. And as I mentioned previously, the areas of brains could be affected where the person's ability to think, organize, plan may be affected, although the person understands, hey, I'm having a problem, but he's not able to focus, plan, organize, and execute the treatment plan, what the person may be really uh, helped with. So it's important for, for the provider or for the clinicians or for the experts in the community and, and also for policymakers to kind of raise the awareness of this and uh, come up with an integrated pathway, which is tailor-made approach, and, and introduce screening tools, you know, in, in different areas of work, what we do, I mean, right from emergency room to mental health uh, uh, providers and substance use providers, for them to really understand the TBI is, is one of the major area uh, could get potentially missed, and then we could then treat the patient uh, not in a right way uh, to get the best outcome uh, possible in this case. Well, doctor, I think that uh, is about all I have for questions for you right now. Is there anything else that you want to add here before I let you go? No, thanks for having me here. And, and I think uh, this is one of our very important study, and I'm, I'm really pleased that uh, we have a study locally within Canada uh, and locally in BC. Um, but but this, is, this study clearly shows that it replicates the problems what we're facing in a society. Uh, and, and sometimes in terms of uh, the comprehensive healthcare focus uh, can get lost. So this really highlights the importance that, uh, that when, when clients suffering from a problem, it's important to screen comprehensively and particularly when clients are suffering from substance use and mental health issues, there are other underlying problems such as TBI, homelessness, other social determinants, and, and we need to treat the person as a whole and, and provide an individualized care plan and a package in an integrated fashion, uh, particularly in the area of concurrent disorders with other associated risk factors. Well, Vijay, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think it's an important issue. And, uh, yeah, you definitely provided some more insight for me and I hope uh, some of my listeners as well. So thanks so much for doing this. Thanks for having me. Take care. You as well. That was Dr. Vijay Sitapathy. Coming up after the break, I will be talking about the MSP. Yes, those medical service plan premiums are set to be eliminated on January 1, but how does the business community feel about it? We'll be talking about the uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Friday, December the 6th. Thank you so much for tuning in today. The last round of medical service plan premium bills has been sent out by the B.C. government with the cost set to be fully eliminated on New Year's Day. Premier John Horgan had promised to eliminate MSP bills during his last election campaign. So the province is following through on that and is now covering the cost through an employer's health tax, which has been charged to businesses since the beginning of this year. Here now to talk about this issue is... Muriel Protzer with the uh, Policy Analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Muriel, thanks so much for coming on with me today. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. 
So uh, let me just start, I guess, by kind of getting an overall sense of what the CFIB's stance is on this whole issue. I mean, what has the impact been here over these past 11 months while there has been, you know, the, the MSP premiums coming from individuals, but also the employer health tax now, which has been uh, being charged to businesses over the course of these past 11 months? So the employer health tax is a $2 billion new tax on small business owners, well, business owners across BC. But what we're seeing is that a lot of those businesses paying are, in fact, small businesses. Over 75,000 uh, businesses, we estimate, are now paying this tax. And this year, especially 2019, not only are they paying for that 50% of the remainder of the MSP costs, they also have this new tax that not only they have to pay, somehow recover the costs, but in addition, sign up to pay this cost. There's the administrative burden as well, and navigating, well, how much do I actually owe, and how do I even pay this tax? So what, what kind of impacts has this had on, on businesses? I mean, you mentioned, obviously, small businesses are the ones who are going to be hit the hardest when it comes to this kind of stuff, and, and I didn't even think about necessarily the administrative stuff that comes along with the uh, implementation of this EHT. Um, so just what, what kind of stories have you been hearing from some of the small businesses throughout BC? Have there been a lot of concerns about the, their future as a result of this? This has been a really difficult tax for small business to absorb. Payroll taxes, which the employer's health tax is a payroll tax, are the most difficult type of taxes for small business to absorb. We know that from surveying small businesses. Um, I've spoken to small businesses personally and heard stories of, well, under the previous MSP, they were paying about, uh, for one example, a grocery store in Ladysmith was paying about $30,000 in the MSP cost. But now with the employer health tax, they're paying $120,000. That's an increase of fourfold and a really significant one. We're hearing that some small business owners are having to increase their prices. Really consider if they can't afford that additional employee because a new payroll tax means it's more costly to hire that additional uh, additional worker. And, and this is kind of coming online when we're seeing also, I believe, a, a bit of an increase to minimum wage. So this is kind of almost a, a double whammy for, for some small businesses out there. There's a lot of cost increases happening right now in small business. The employer health tax is certainly the largest concern right now um, at the provincial level. But then we also have municipal issues. We've got property taxes skyrocketing, skyrocketing right now. Uh, it's, it's becoming... Um, a lot more difficult right now for small businesses. That's the sentiment that I'm starting to hear is that the, the accumulation of all these new costs that they're having to absorb is too much at once. And uh, right now with the employer health tax, we really need to see some short-term solutions to help lessen that burden. And on top of that, have a long-term plan to phase it out because let's be honest, payroll tax is most difficult for small business to absorb. There must be a better way. Now, uh, the employer health tax, uh, as you had mentioned, it's almost $2 billion in additional uh, costs here. So the employer health tax adds 1.95% uh, for businesses with a payroll over $1.5 and in companies under 500000 in their payroll were exempt from this tax, while those in between have paid a reduced rate. Um, so I'm I just wondering if there's any sectors that maybe have been impacted more than others as a result of this. Are you hearing, uh, you know, specific industries that maybe are dealing with this a little bit harder as a result of maybe that variation in your payroll? 
Well, I think any small business having to pay the tax is already uh, feeling the pinch from that. But even more so right now, uh, attracting tech co- companies is something that the government has really focused on in growing that industry here in British Columbia. And those are high-paying jobs. And with high-paying jobs means high payroll taxes, which means a high EHT bill at the end of the day for that small business. Um, do you think this is going to have an impact then on uh, potentially having new businesses move to, to BC or, or businesses start up in BC when you're looking at having these additional administrative costs? I think it certainly could. I mean, looking across Canada, uh, we released a report this year, CFIB, looking at the total payroll tax burden uh, across the country in different provinces. There are five provinces that impose a provincial payroll tax. And out of all the provinces across uh, Canada, British Columbia has the second most burdensome tax in the country. So certainly, uh, if we have uh, new people moving to Canada, looking to start up a business, and they're thinking, where do they want to set down roots? This might be a deterrent. I'm here with uh, policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, Muriel Protzer. So uh, I guess, what what do you think is the ideal way? I mean, have you guys as at CFIB sort of done any work to think about what would be the ideal way to go about, uh, you know, having some of these costs distributed? Uh, you know, we, we as individuals, obviously in BC, are, are happy to see these premiums being eliminated, but from a business perspective, uh, you know, disappointing to, to have to take on these additional costs. So I'm just curious if you guys have sort of uh, put together any sort of happy medium or have maybe a, a particular uh, plan that you think would work best when it comes to finding out how to finance this? I know that's a government issue, but just uh, in terms of how do businesses mm-hmm. go about contributing? I mean, is there a, is there a perfect solution here or, or do you have any ideas? Well, I think first and foremost, it's important to realize that the revenues from the employer health tax actually go into general revenue. So they're not going directly to cover health care costs. On top of that, it's a $2 billion tax. Now, that's only 10% of total health care costs. So really, this is just another tax and it's falling on business owners. Now, what CFIB has proposed are some short-term solutions that would lessen the burden of this tax, such as making the tax fully graduated so there's not this weird calculation of depending on where your payroll's at, you pay a different percent, and then whether or not you're eligible for that 500000 deduction, as well as increasing the exemption threshold. For example, Manitoba, a neighboring province in the West here, who also has a provincial payroll tax, now their threshold for, exam- for exemption is $1.25 million. That's something that we feel could help our small businesses um, so they're not having to be burdened by this tax. But long-term, what we really need to be looking at is phasing out this tax um, with years of surplus to come. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like the, the budget isn't maybe in the most uh, healthy situation right now, but years down the road when the province is in surplus, this should be the first thing that we're looking at, the employer health tax when it comes to offering some mitigating measures and some relief for small businesses. Uh, have you have you been uh, having conversations about that with, with anyone who can maybe have a difference? I mean, talking with government officials, have you heard any sort of positive response to some of the suggestions that you're making here? CFIB meets with government officials regularly. We've met with uh, many of the ministers, Minister of Finance, the Minister Responsible for Small Business, and we bring these issues to their attention. And uh, we work with any any uh, party, any government party who's willing to come out in support of policies that support small business. And we will continue to work closely with them and advocate for policies that do support our local entrepreneurs and help uh, grow our local economies. And hopefully going forward, this is something we can continue to raise with them um, to emphasize the impact that it is having on our local businesses and move forward from there. 
I'll, I'll get you out of here on this, Muriel. So uh, one of the, I guess, arguments uh, to make this switch that uh, the government has proposed is that, you know, with the uh, premiums being eliminated, that's more money in the pockets of individuals and more money in the pockets of families. And in turn, they can go out and spend that money at a small business. Um, from from the CFIB perspective, I mean, does that happen when, when, you know, people are given these kinds of rebates and have an extra few dollars in their pocket? Does that translate to more dollars spent at small business? Well, it's hard to exactly quantify what that impact is on a local economic scale. Um, it's certainly, you know, great for residents. One less bill in the uh, bill in the mail. I definitely sympathize with that and understand affordability is a huge issue, especially in Metro Vancouver and across British Columbia. Um, but the bottom line here is that small businesses they have just had this new two billion dollar tax placed on them, and it's very difficult for them to absorb. And those residents who are seeing that direct decrease of not having that MSP bill will still be impacted by this employer's health tax in other ways. Small businesses, they're going to have to raise prices in response to this, maybe not hire that additional worker. Adjustments will have to be made, and I think residents will still feel that pinch indirectly that way. Yeah, definitely a, a lot to think about. There's so many spin-off consequences that come as a result of one small policy change. I guess in this case, it's not small at all. But, but yeah, just uh, you know, a, a change in how we go about spending our money or how we go about collecting our money just can have uh, such a big trickle effect that maybe we don't always think about. So thanks so much for coming on, Muriel. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking about this issue. And it's definitely something we'll be uh, paying attention to as uh, as uh, you know more more changes are made and as you make this push to to see this tax eliminated over the course of time. I'm sure we'll we'll catch up again on this issue and, and on other issues as, as well moving forward. So thanks so much, Muriel. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having CFIB. All right. That was Muriel Protzer, policy analyst with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And uh, yeah, we actually had a comment as well from our local Chamber of Commerce President Joshua Nack, who has some concerns about this as well. I'm just going to throw out a hypothetical here, right? But I mean, so the, the local sandwich shop, now they're paying more. Well, where is that going to come from? It's going to come from the fact that they're going to have to increase the, the price of their product to, to offset that. Like, it's that's the silliness about that is because government shifts, they take from one pool and they transfer to another pool, and then they treat it as if suddenly this cost has just disappeared. No, it hasn't disappeared. It's just being paid a different way, ultimately, still by BC residents. And it's really just it's optics and it's and it's the frustrating thing is it's really just about electability at the time of running and i mean it, to their credit they they ran on it they uh, they are carrying through with it but you know we're not we're not actually reducing the cost of anything we're not uh we're not we're not saving money we're not saying like hey this cost is going away because the economy is so healthy that you know we're absorbing it in other ways or or, or we're running a surplus and so now we can you know pay out ralph bucks like they did way back in alberta when i when i was a kid you know we're not in that kind of a scenario we're just saying instead of collecting tax from the individual we're going to collect tax from businesses so there you go. Obviously, a number of concerns about how this is being rolled out from a business perspective, but from an individual's perspective, from uh, you know families and, and people who live in BC, that's extra money in our pockets. So I'm not going to complain about it from uh, for myself. I'm happy to have those extra dollars uh, in my wallet come the end of the month. Um, but businesses are obviously feeling the pinch, and uh, that's not going to change here moving forward. So we'll see uh, how things change over the course of the next little while. Like I said, January 1 is when these MSP premiums are going to be eliminated. So I'm happy to not have to pay that 
that bill. But uh, yeah, uh, employers not happy to have to pay that additional tax. Coming up after the break, I'm going to be speaking with MP Kathy McLeod and get her reaction to yesterday's throne speech. The minority liberals laid out their mandate here uh, moving forward. And so we'll get the, the conservative reaction on that after this. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk at RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on today, which is Friday, December the 6th. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, yesterday was the delivery of the first throne speech under a minority liberal mandate and included uh, calls for national unity, but conservative opposition leader Andrew Scheer says the Prime Minister's actions are having dividing effects here on Canada. I'm joined now by Kamloops Thompson Caribou MP and Conservative MP Kathy McLeod. Kathy, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Good morning. So uh, let me just start, I guess, by getting your reaction to, uh, you know, what your leader is talking about here. Uh, you know, the, the throne speech itself was calling for, quote-unquote, national unity, but uh, Andrew Scheer is, is uh, singing quite the opposite tune. So I guess what, what is your perspective on, on uh, how liberals are looking to unite the country right now? Well, I think that's the problem. You can put words into a speech that sound nice and call for national unity, but it is your policies and your plans that create that unity, and and it's reflecting the different concerns and interests of different regions of the country, and that's where this particular speech from the throne was very much lacking. So it's great to say the words unity, but it means you have to have listened to what the premiers were saying, what the opposition leaders were saying, what the mayors are saying, and that's a piece that didn't connect. Yeah, and I guess a lot of the concerns um, when it comes to, to talking about that divide is when we're looking at our natural resources sector and, and uh, you know, how, how that's being portrayed here as we look out west. I know there's a lot of concerns in, in places like Alberta and, and uh, Saskatchewan about what's going on with the natural resources there. So in your role as natural resources critic, and, and obviously this has a, a big impact here when we're talking, uh, you know, forestry in B.C., um, what, what concerns do you have about how natural resources were, were uh, mentioned here in this throne speech? Do you have any concerns about uh, about the natural resource sector here well, I think it was said best by journalist Andrew Coyne. He said there was a throwaway line regarding natural resources. Natural resources are a significant part of the, our gross domestic product, and we are having companies moving to the States. The software forestry uh, crisis was not mentioned, the forestry crisis in B.C. What I saw in the speech from the throne was a lot of plans for spending, and I can acknowledge that you know Canadians might like the idea of a farmer care plan or or other things that would make their lives easier um, but what it was doing at the same time was there's a hand that feeds and the hand that feeds is our natural resource industry it's our businesses it's our competitiveness and what we're seeing is a plan for lots of spending but at the same time policies that are driving away what will create the revenue for the government and will create the opportunity so um, you know I think as I say lots of people like the idea of um, pharmacy as an example, but that's billions of dollars if you're um, 
driving the revenue away, it's going to be a problem. And even if you look at the job numbers today, one of the biggest drops in employment in you know the last 10 years. So there's some signs of worry on the horizon, and it's just going to, I believe, get more worrying. Now, uh, Bloc Quebecois appears ready to, to vote in favor of this uh, throne speech as it is, so it uh, looks like things are going to move forward uh, without any amendments having to be made. But I know uh, you, Andrew Shear, was looking to, to at least propose some amendments. I guess from your perspective, from a conservative uh, party perspective, what sort of changes are you hoping to see made? If you were able to have your way, I guess, what, what uh, immediate changes would you like to see? Well, he tabled a pretty comprehensive amendment today in his reply to the speech from the throne, but it's essentially, again, acknowledging that um, we need to have an economy that's strong, that we need to have policies that are strong, we need to have a united Canada, and it's about the actions and it's about the policies. You know, I... I am realistic enough to acknowledge that it'll probably only be conservatives that vote for this amendment, but, um, you know, certainly he put our perspective forward. Now, I'll, I'll ask this as well. I mean, we've talked about all the things in there that uh, maybe aren't um, in line with conservative values, but what, was there anything in this throne speech that uh, stuck out to you as, uh, you know, something you're, you're happy to see in there and something you're happy to see move forward? But uh, is there anything within this liberal mandate as it's presented right now that, that uh, you know, at least gets you a little bit excited, I guess? I don't know if there's a better word to use than that, but just, uh, you know, <laughs> happy to see move forward. You know, there, there are some things that I think are important. The continuation in terms of our partnership and our recognition of um, Indigenous peoples in this country and the need for reconciliation. I think that's unfinished work and we need to move forward. But at the same time, he didn't look at the economic opportunities. You know, certainly I think the, the tax cut that is proposed is going to be welcome for many. Uh, but again, I think if you're decreasing the revenue of government and you are increasing spending at the same time, again, we're headed for, for more trouble. So, you know, I think there's lots of things you can say, well, I like that idea, but but again, if you can't afford it and we are looking now at our great-grandchildren to be paying it back, that's a concern that I think we all should have. All right, Kathy. Well, uh, yeah, definitely a lot to take in there yesterday out of uh, out of the throne speech from Julie Payette, and and uh, you know we're we're just starting to see how this is going to shape the government moving forward. I guess uh, that is there anything else that you want to add here? Is there anything else you want to say to your constituents here in Kamloops before I let you go? Well, first, I would like to say that, you know, certainly I'm really honored to be back representing them. I'm very pleased to have been given a natural resource portfolio with a special focus on mining forestry. A lot provincial, but there's many, many areas of federal overlay. And so I'm just going to look forward to working hard and, and trying to get something done on behalf of our communities. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. You know, we here at NL always uh, appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. So thanks so much for doing this and enjoy the rest of your day here. Okay, have a great day. You as well. That was Kamloops Thompson Caribou uh, Conservative MP Kathy McLeod uh, talking about the throne speech there that was presented yesterday by uh, Julie Payette and uh, just yeah, just some of her thoughts, concerns, and, and you know what she's also happy to see in that throne speech here moving forward as the Liberals get set uh, to, uh, to uh, lay out their mandate to uh, move forward uh, as they form government here moving forward. Like I said, the Bloc Quebecois are, are uh, appearing ready to, to prop the government up at this point in time and move forward. And uh, like Kathy had said as well, there is a pretty comprehensive uh, amendment that's on the table from the Conservatives, and that will be uh, likely voted by them, but uh, probably not by anybody else. So, 
it looks like things will move forward as is for now. Well, that about wraps things up for me here today. I would like to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, if you join me for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted.